Having concluded his discourse on submission, Peter returns to his exhortation on suffering in 1 Peter 3, 13-22. Previously, he addressed the suffering of believers in 1 Peter 2, 22, exhorting us to perform good deeds. In doing so, pagans would see our good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. Now Peter turns his attention to the behavior of those who are suffering. How are we to behave when suffering persecution from the hostile world in which we live? And so 1 Peter 3, 13-22, we're going to see the behavior of the suffering. And we're going to begin in verses 13-17 to to see the behavior of the suffering believers. The behavior of suffering believers. Verse 13 begins, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ, will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right, rather than for doing what is wrong. Peter begins here with a question. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The verb harm, kakao, is only used here in 1 Peter and Acts. In Acts 7, 6, and 19, the verb harm describes the suffering of Israel by the Egyptians. Acts 7, 6, and 19. God spoke to this effect that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they should be enslaved and mistreated or harmed for 400 years. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated or harmed our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 1, and chapter 14 and verse 2, it describes the suffering of the church. Acts 12, 1. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat or harm them. Acts 14, verse 2. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered or caused them to harm the brethren. And in 1 Peter 3.13, Peter now asks, who is the cause of the believer's suffering? His question, though, is conditional. If you prove zealous, that's a third-class conditional clause indicating a probable future scenario. That is, this is what's likely going to happen. The probable future scenario is that believers would prove zealous for what is good. The word prove means to become or exist. Zealous refers to being fervent or eager for something. In this case, we are to be eager for what is good. And good, according to chapter 2 and verse 22, refers to avoiding fleshly desires and maintaining virtuous behavior. Now, Christian, is that what you're doing? Are you avoiding fleshly desires? Are you maintaining virtuous behavior? So to answer Peter's question, no one will harm us or cause us to suffer as long as we continue to do that which is morally upright eagerly. 
The implication is that if we do evil and someone harms us or mistreats us, we only have ourselves to blame. So the likely future scenario is believers are going to do that which is good, and therefore they shouldn't have to suffer. Now, there is a possible exception in verse 14. If you should suffer for the sake of righteousness... No doubt Peter's recalling the words of Christ in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The phrase, if you should suffer, is a fourth class conditional clause indicating a less probable future action. In other words, Peter presents a scenario that would normally be generally unlikely. Suffer means to experience some harm or emotional pain. Righteousness refers to God's standard to which people are expected to conform. Peter previously used this term in 1 Peter 2 verse 24 as live to righteousness. See, if we suffer harm and emotional pain from living righteously, the text says we will be blessed. That is, we will be the recipients of divine favor or grace. So there's two scenarios here. One is the likely scenario. You're going to be zealous of good works. You're going to be morally upright. And as a result, you're not going to suffer. But there's also a less probable, possible, but probable future. And that is, you are going to suffer for righteousness sake. You're going to be morally upright and you're going to suffer for it. Now since believers may suffer for righteousness, Peter provides us with four ways to act or behave in such a scenario. Peter's source text here is Isaiah 8, 12 and 13. In the context of Isaiah 8, 11 to 15, Yahweh commanded the people of Judah to fear him and not the plans of Israel and Aram. Aram would be modern Syria. If the people of Judah placed their trust in Yahweh, he would provide them sanctuary. Those who failed to trust him would stumble and fall. Peter chose this text because his initial readers were similarly suffering from oppression as Judah had. And like Judah... Peter's readers were tempted to fear their persecutors. Now first, when suffering, believers should not fear their intimidation or be troubled. Now here Peter directly quotes Isaiah 8.12. The fear, phobio, means to be afraid or anxious. Intimidation is the same Greek word phobeo, just translated as fear. The phrase can be rendered then as, do not fear their fear. The term troubled, tarasso, is to be distressed by danger. Remember, Peter has repeatedly exhorted believers to fear God, not people. And since God blesses us when we suffer for righteousness sake, we do not need to be anxious or distressed by the suffering or those who cause our suffering. Second, believers must sanctify Christ as Lord in their hearts. Now, this is an allusion to Isaiah 8.13. Sanctify means to set apart. 
The term Lord is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh. By referring to Christ as Lord, Peter is equating him to Yahweh. Hearts refers to a person's thoughts, desires, passions, and emotions. The heart is the source of your behavior, and it determines who you are. As Proverbs 23, verse 7 tells us, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Thus, we are to set apart Christ as the Lord, or Yahweh, over our thoughts, desires, passions, and emotions. Now, you need to evaluate yourself and ask, have you submitted your thoughts, desires, passions, and emotions to Jesus as Lord? Is He the one controlling them or not? See, believers, you do not make Jesus your Lord. He is already Lord. By setting Him apart as Lord of your hearts, you are acknowledging His Lordship in your life. Have you done that? Have you acknowledged His Lordship? Now, see, when Christ controls our inner man, we will exhibit His same attitude when facing suffering. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient. See, instead of fighting for His rights or defending Himself, Christ surrendered to the suffering. And this is the attitude that we must demonstrate, particularly during times of suffering. We are called to humility. And a humble believer is a believer whose Lord is Christ. A believer who is not humble has not submitted themselves to Christ's Lordship. Examine yourself. Are you a humble person? Humility is a mark of surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Pride, on the other hand, is evidence that you have not surrendered to His Lordship. The third behavior, believers are to always be ready to make a defense. Now, so when we suffer, first of all, we're told, don't fear their fear, don't be distressed by the danger. Second, we're told to set apart Christ as the Lord of our hearts. And third, we're to be, always be ready to make a defense. Now, the phrase always be ready means wholly and regularly prepared to do something. To make a defense, apologia, is to make a verbal, reasoned defense to prove what someone believes. Now, the term apologetics is derived from the Greek term apologia. And notice it's to everyone who asks. That envisions the fact that we're to make a defense to a wide variety of people. Such defense makes Christianity marketedly different from the surrounding pagan religions, which require secrecy of their beliefs. Thus, believers must be holy and regularly prepared to provide a reasonable defense for their beliefs to all who ask. Are you prepared? Are you wholly and regularly prepared to provide a reasonable defense of your beliefs? Now, that is not to say that every one of us are going to be a doctorate-level apologist. What it does mean, though, is that all of us must have a grasp upon the essentials of orthodoxy 
and the ability to explain what they believe or why they believe those essentials to be true. Do you know what biblical orthodoxy is? Can you outline biblical orthodoxy? Can you outline what identifies Christianity and makes it different? The faith once delivered. And can you defend from Scripture why those things are true? You see, there's no room for claiming that biblical doctrine is above your pay grade. That is a cop-out. That's a cop-out. If you come upon something that you don't know or understand biblically, it is incumbent upon you to find the answers. Now notice the subject of this particular defense is the hope that is in you. The term hope is an eager, confident expectation centered on the triune God. As previously discussed, this hope is living or active. That is, it knows that the triune God is doing something. God has saved believers through His foreknowledge, the Spirit's ministry of sanctification, and the sun-sprinkled blood. God is sustaining scattered and suffering believers by guaranteeing their future resurrection and glorification through the resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ. And so, you and I, believer, are to be able to produce a reasoned defense of these truths. Can you do that? Can you do that? Now, there's many facets to biblical orthodoxy, but let's just take these here. Can you give a reasoned defense that there's a triune God? Can you give a reasoned defense about God's foreknowledge? Can you give a reasoned defense of the Spirit's ministry of sanctification? Can you give a reasoned defense on the Son's sprinkled blood? Can you give a reasoned defense about the believer's future resurrection and glorification? Can you give a reasoned defense about the resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ? And if not, don't cop out. Well, that's above my pay grade. I, I, I didn't go to seminary. No, that's, that doesn't cut it. It's incumbent upon you to find the answers. Now notice here how we are to make such a defense. With gentleness and reverence. The term gentleness conveys the ideas of courtesy and compassion. In other words, we're not impressed with our own self-importance. The term reverence, phobos, has been previously used through 1 Peter to refer to fearing or reverencing God. As we reverence our Father, we seek to please Him in our daily conduct. Thus, in defending what we believe, we are to do it with courtesy and compassion. There is no room for arrogance, aggressiveness, or acrimony. These things are not to be there. No arrogance, no aggressiveness, no acrimony. As well, such a defense is to be conducted out of reverence for God. See, God is your witness, believer, and you are going to be held more responsible to Him for your defense than those to whom you present your defense. And so when somebody questions you or corners you or puts you on the spot and asks you why you believe whatever you believe, do you respond in arrogance or, or do you respond aggressively? 
If that's your, how you're responding, you're not responding biblically. If you have to yell and raise your voice or talk over the other person to th- and think you're making your point, I've got news for you. That's not God's way of making a defense of what you believe. That's your flesh. Number four, believers are to keep a good conscience. A good conscience. Again, good refers to that which is morally excellent or righteous or beneficial. Conscience refers to the God-given ability to evaluate the moral quality of a human action. And so a good conscience then is one that is morally clean or upright. The idea conveyed here is that we would behave in a morally clean or upright manner, especially when we're slandered or reviled. Now, slandered here means to be charged falsely, particularly with malicious intent. Revile is to abuse or threaten someone orally. These abuses or threats are related to the good behavior of the believer. In other words, it presents a case where we are being condemned for our godly lifestyle. When falsely charged or threatened, we must keep a good conscience so that those doing the charging and threatening will be put to shame. The phrase will be put to shame means to be dishonored or humiliated. So when you and I behave morally and uprightly, when we're falsely charged or threatened, those who trump up such charges or threats will be humiliated. And it's worth noting that it is not our responsibility to humiliate our accusers. That's not our job. That responsibility belongs only to God. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Peter concludes his exhortation on the behavior of believers with a reminder. He says it is better to suffer for doing what is right than what is wrong. Peter uses the optative mood of the verb suffer because he does not know the degree that God will bring suffering into our lives. Some of us will experience more suffering than others. Nonetheless, we can rest in knowing that our suffering is not outside of God's will. As the book of Job demonstrates, God's people cannot be touched apart from his permission. Let's move on to verses 18 to 22. And now let's consider the behavior of the suffering Christ. The behavior of the suffering Christ. Verse 18. For Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Now previously, 
Peter presented Christ as the suffering submissive servant in 1 Peter 2, 21-25. There we were admonished to follow Christ's example in five ways. One, like Christ, we should not suffer because of sins committed. We shouldn't be committing sin. Listen, if you suffer because you're committing sin, that's on you. Two, like Christ, we are to live sincerely and be prepared to suffer in justice. Number three, like Christ, we are not to resort to slander. Now, I see a lot of slander from Christians in social media. Christian, you've got no business slandering, even if they're wrong, even if they're the opposing quote-unquote party. It's not your job to slander. You're a Christian. You need to live above that. You need to be like Christ. Four, like Christ, we are not to threaten or retaliate. And number five, like Christ, we must willingly submit to suffering knowing it's God's will. Now again, you need to examine yourself. If there's suffering in your life, is it because of sin? Are you living sincerely? Are you prepared to suffer injustice? Are you resorting to slander? Are you threatening or retaliating? Or are you willing, willing to submit to suffering? You need to ask and answer those questions for yourselves. Now, once again, Peter presents Christ as the example of suffering, particularly his behavior while enduring suffering. He states, Christ also died for sins. Now, the verb died here, pasco, is not the usual verb to die, which is apathnesco, apathnesco. The Greek term pasco means to experience suffering or pain. Peter's use of the term suffering instead of dying is based on Christ's own words in Luke 24, 40, 46. Thus it is written that Christ would suffer pasco and rise again from the dead the third day. Quoting the Old Testament, Christ substituted the term suffering for death. Thus, like believers, Christ also suffered. However, his suffering was to the point of death. And the purpose of his suffering was for sins. The term for sins, parahamartia, indicates that Christ suffered as the sin offering. Now in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The term sin in 2 Corinthians 5.21 also translates the Greek term hamartia. In the Septuagint, hamartia translates the Hebrew term Hata'at. That term is the term for both sin and sin offering. The term hatat is translated as sin offering 116 times in the Old Testament. Exodus 30, verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. He shall make atonement on it with the blood of the sin offering, the kahatat of atonement once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, according to the theological word book of the Old Testament, in Leviticus and in Numbers, the noun appears many times alternating in meaning between sin, the reality of disobedience to God, and sin offering, 
the means of removing the guilt and penalty of sin before the Lord through the sacrificial system. Peter's point in verse 18 and Paul's point in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that Christ became the sin offering. Because Jesus was the sinless one, God made him the sin offering so that his wrath against humanity's sin could be assuaged. In the fourth century, Ambrosiaster stated this, quote, In view of the fact that he was made an offering for sins, it is not wrong for him to be said to have been made sin, because in the law the sacrifice which was offered for sins used to be called a sin. The Tree of Life version, a Messianic Jewish translation of the Bible, translates 2 Corinthians 5.21 as follows. He made the one who knew no sin to become a sin offering on our behalf. Thus Christ's suffering death provides atonement. Christ also, or excuse me, Christ suffered and died as the sin offering once for all. Now we see that term several times in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 7.27 who do, does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all, when he offered up himself. Hebrews 9.12, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 10.10, 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all means that Christ's sacrifice as the sin offering happened on one occasion to exclude all other occasions. As well it means taking place once and to the exclusion of any further occurrence once for all, once and never again. See, Christ's sacrificial death is so sufficient that it does not need to be repeated or renewed. Because he died once for all times, when you and I were regenerated, we were regenerated once for all times. Christ's suffering was also substitutionary, the just for the unjust. The term just indicates that Christ was perfect in his conformity to God's law. He was sinless and he suffered, or excuse me, his suffering was undeserved. That Christ suffered unfairly and remained sinless is the example for you and I to follow. Undeserved suffering is no excuse for you and I to sin. The term unjust depicts you and I, humanity, as transgressors of God's law. Because of transgression or sin, we needed a substitute who could bring us to God. And the term bring conveys the sense of access to God. The act of bringing one to God refers to the end game of atonement, the work of reconciliation between God and humanity. This reconciliation work was accomplished because Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. The phrase in the flesh denotes Christ's humanity, which was put to death. Christ did not remain dead, but was made alive. Made alive is in the passive voice, meaning that Christ did not make himself alive. 
He died, but it was God the Father who made him alive. But I want you to note here that Christ was made alive in spirit. This statement is significant because it does not refer to Christ's resurrection, though Christ was indeed physically resurrected. Instead, it means that Christ was made alive spiritually. He was made alive spiritually means that he died spiritually. Indeed, that is precisely what occurred. When Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Christ suffered spiritual death, separation from God. After this, Christ proclaimed, It is finished, and physically died. It must be underscored that Christ was made alive in the Spirit or spiritually resurrected before He died physically. Now Christ being physically dead was buried in the tomb awaiting resurrection 72 hours later. However, being spiritually alive, Christ began a ministry in Sheol. See the phrase there, in which also he went. That indicates that Christ's resurrected spirit went from one plane of existence to another, that is from earth to Sheol. Now during the era before the Messiah's death and resurrection, everyone upon death went to Sheol. Genesis thirty-seven thirty-five. Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Proverbs 9, 18. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Sheol is divided into two compartments, a lower compartment and an upper compartment, separated by a vast chasm. Luke 16, 26. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. The just were kept in the upper compartment, known as Abraham's bosom or paradise, while the unjust were contained to the lower compartment, known as hell. Following his physical resurrection, Christ removed paradise and took its inhabitants to heaven. Currently, Sheol consists of only the lower compartment, known as hell, a place of fiery torment. When Jesus physically died, his spirit went down into Sheol, specifically the upper compartment, paradise. He then crossed the chasm and entered into the lower compartment, the place of fiery torment. And while there, Peter says, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. The term spirits needs to be understood as angelic beings, as Hebrews 1.14 uses the same term, spirits, referring to angelic beings. Now, while Satan and his demons are not in hell, some angelic beings are permanently imprisoned in hell, specifically in a place known as Tartarus. Tartarus is a term that originated in Greek mythology where the demigods were punished. And according to Greek mythology, Tartarus was a place lower than hell, or Hades, set aside for the most wicked. The Jews used this term to describe the prison house where fallen angels were confined, according to the book of Enoch. First Enoch states this, 
There are a number of the stars of heaven which have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and are bound here till 10,000 years, the time entailed by their sins are consummated. And he said unto me, This place is for the prison of the angels, and here they will be imprisoned forever. Peter quotes Enoch when referencing the fallen angels consigned in Tartarus in 2 Peter 2.4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into Tartarus, or hell, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Peter's term usage does not indicate that he believed in Greek mythology. He simply adapted the term. As well, Peter's reference to the, books, or to the book of Enoch does not make it inspired by God. These fallen angels are imprisoned in Tartarus. Why? because they left the angelic realm and entered the human realm, Jude 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. The phrase abandon their proper abode refers to having illicit sexual relationships and references Genesis 6. Genesis 6 verses 1 and 2 and verse 4. It came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those who were the mighty men of old, men of renown. Now, every reference to the sons of God in the Old Testament is to angels. In addition, the Septuagint translates sons of God in Genesis 6 as angels. Again, the book of 1 Enoch states, And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose wives from among the children of men and beget us children. So in the words of Peter, these sons of God, or angels, were disobedient, taking the daughters of men as wives. The term took, used in Genesis 6-2, is the collective term for entering into a marriage relationship. And the result of this insidious union between fallen angels and human women were the Nephilim, or fallen ones. Now, not all fallen angels took human women as wives, but there is no doubt that Satan orchestrated this. Satan, knowing the promise that the seed son would crush his head, wanted to corrupt the seed of the woman and prevent the Messiah's coming. Now notice, when Christ went into Sheol, he went there to make a proclamation to the spirits in prison. The proclamation which Christ made to these imprisoned demons was not the gospel. Peter uses the term euangelizo in his epistles to denote the gospel. Here the term is caruso, meaning to announce important news loudly. Christ announced that Satan's attempt to corrupt the seed of the woman failed. His death provided salvation for humanity and guaranteed Satan's final destiny in the lake of fire. Now in verse 20, Peter alludes to the patience of God concerning Noah's building of the ark. The phrase refers to the 120 years during which God allowed humanity to repent before the coming judgment. And when the flood arrived, all humanity was wiped out except for the eight persons aboard the ark. 
Peter references the flood narrative as an encouragement to us. See, like Noah and his family, the Jewish believers first reading this epistle were few in numbers and surrounded by paganism and hostility. And Peter's point was that they did not need to be discouraged by their small number, nor do we. The time of suffering which believers endure is also a time for those who cause the suffering to repent. And just as the flood's judgment vindicated Noah and his family, so too you and I will be vindicated at the great white throne judgment. Hence, Peter appeals to us to persevere like Christ and Noah. Will you persevere like Christ and Noah? God preserved both Christ and Noah when each endured the suffering of persecution, and he'll do the same for us. Peter then announces that the flood is a type of baptism in verse 21. The term corresponding to antitipos refers to the antitype or fulfillment of the type. Now, a type is an Old Testament person, event, or thing that has, that has historical reality and is designed by God to prefigure or foreshadow in a preparatory way a real person, event, or thing so designated in the New Testament, and that corresponds to and fulfills or heightens the type. So in the context here, the flood is the type. That's the Old Testament event. And baptism is the antitype, okay? Baptism is the thing that fulfills or heightens the type. Now, the flood is a type of baptism in the following sense. Both events picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When the flood came, the earth was entirely immersed in the water. So, too, believer, you and I are to be wholly immersed in the waters of baptism. And death was the result of immersing the earth under the waters of the flood. And when we are immersed in the waters of baptism, we are identifying with the death of Christ and the fact that we are dead to sin, Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of the, us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Noah and his family passed through the waters of the flood and stepped out on dry land. When we pass through the waters of baptism and come forth out of the water, we identify with Christ's resurrection, Romans 6.4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and the death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, Peter makes a statement about baptism that has confused the modern reader of Scripture. He states that baptism now saves you. And to be clear, Peter is not promoting salvation by baptism. Baptism is the public testimony of repentance of sin and faith in Christ. And repentance and faith always precede the act of baptism in Scripture. Furthermore, Peter clarifies his statement to avoid any misinterpretations. First, he states that baptism is not the removal of dirt from the flesh. In other words, baptism does not cleanse anyone from sin. Second, he states that baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, Hebrews 10.22 tells us that we were given that good conscience through the death and resurrection of Christ. Our hearts were sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. 
Now, here's the key. The term appeal occurs only here in the New Testament and can be rendered a pledge or a binding commitment to a contract's terms. Hence, it is, the act of, it is in the act of baptism that the believer pledges to God to maintain a good conscience. Have you been baptized? If not, let's sit down and talk. And if you have been baptized, remember, it's a, you have committed yourself to maintain a good conscience. You've committed yourself to God, that you're going to live in the newness of life. Peter now concludes his enunciation of Christ, the suffering servant, by stating that his suffering and servitude are finished. He's now at the right hand of God. And that he is at the right hand of God displays that he has divine authority. The reference to the right hand is an allusion to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. Here the equality between the Father and Son is emphasized. The Son's redemptive work is complete, and he is sitting to the right of his Father, the King. And one who sits at the right hand of the King is equal to the King. No angel has ever sat or will sit at God's right hand. Luke 1.19 The angels stand in the presence of God. Again, Revelation 8.2 The angels stood before God. From the moment Christ entered heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, angels and authorities and power had been subjected to Him. Angels and authority and power refers to holy angels and demonic forces. Therefore, though we may suffer, Christ still reigns and has not abandoned us to the demonic forces that may be behind our suffering. My friends, to one degree or another, we are going to experience suffering, some more, some less. But how you behave in suffering will speak volumes to the world around you. We must consider four questions. First, are you anxious or distressed by your sufferings or persecutors? Friend, you only need fear God. Do not fear the suffering and do not fear the persecutors. Second, are you acknowledging the lordship of Jesus in your life? When Christ controls your inner man, you will exhibit his humility when facing suffering. Third, are you wholly and regularly prepared to provide a reasonable defense of your beliefs to all who ask? Every one of us needs to have a grasp on the essentials of orthodoxy and the ability to explain why we believe those essentials to be true. And finally, are you behaving in a morally clean and upright manner, especially when slandered and reviled? Friends, when we behave morally and upright, when falsely charged or threatened, those who trump up such charges or threats will be humiliated by God. Father in heaven, I thank you for the text before us today. Even though it had some difficult passages, Father, it was good for us to study those things and to dig into them. And Father, we are prepared in your word to face suffering. To the degree of suffering, we do not know. Some of us may suffer more, some of us may suffer less. But in whatever suffering we face, Father God, I ask and pray that we will behave in a Christ-like fashion. 
that we will behave as he behaved, that we'll be willing to lay down our rights, that we'll be willing to suffer injustice, that we will be willing to return no slander or threats, that, Father, we won't slander, but we'll live godly. Keep us humble, Father. Help us to continue to acknowledge and submit to your Lordship. Take control of our thoughts and mind and emotions and passions so that in all that we say and do, you might be glorified. We pray in your Son's name. Amen.